0: Friends, let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our first scripture reading today comes from the gospel according to Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands. And they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they argued with one and another who was the greatest. He sat him down, he called the twelve, and he said to him, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. And our second reading today comes from the book of James. Who is wise and understanding among you, Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. For such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. For there is envy and selfish ambition, there also will be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sh- sown in peace for those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you commit something and cannot obtain it, So you engage in disputes and conflicts you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. So my favorite poet is T.S. Eliot. He is one of the very first poets in college when I was, for some reason, for about a semester, an English major. I was an English secondary ed major uh, before I turned into a business major. And I do not recommend the reason why. It's, my girlfriend at the time was a business major. Those are not the life decisions you want your, you know, you know why don't want people to make that to say, well, I'm a business major because my girlfriend is. But such it yeah, was not. Was not, but Such is life uh, in college, I guess. But T. S. Eliot always has struck me, and as I get older, I find that his words are more eloquent and more thoughtful. And without fail, almost every Ash Wednesday, at some point, I think it is required reading to read T. S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday. But my favorite poem of all is The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and I'm going to read it this morning as a a way to enter into our sermon today. I will will skip Dante's, sort of the the precursor to Dante. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized on a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless night's in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, the yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains. Let us fall upon its back. The soot that falls from chimneys slipped by the terrace made a sudden leap, and seeing it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces you meet. There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works of days and hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of toast and tea. In the room women come and go, talking of Michelangelo And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare? And do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounted firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pen. they will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. For I have known them already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pen, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? I've known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair, Is it a perfume from a dress that makes me so digress, arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl? And how should then I presume? How should I begin? Shall I say I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floor, silent seas, and the afternoon, the evening, sleep so peacefully smoothed by long fingers, asleep tired, or it lingers. Stretch out onto the floor here beside you and me, should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis, but though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grow slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet. And here's no great matter, I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And it would have been worth it, after all, after the cups, the marmalade, and the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it Towards some overwhelming question to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all, if one settling a pillow by her head should say, that's not what I meant at all, it's not it at all. And it would have been worth it after all, would have been worthwhile after sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this and so much more, it is impossible to say just what I mean. But as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning towards the window should say, that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. Am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt, an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit of tose and at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. I shall grow old, I shall grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I tear eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white air of the waves blown back. When the wind blows the water white and black, we have lingered in the chambers of the sea by seagirls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. I think no matter who we are, there is a part of us that wrestles with our own mini-proof rock. Realize that it's a long poem to hear, and it's, again, it's one of my favorites, so I love hearing it, but boy, well, doesn't it sound like at times we're all there? Well, you know, what should I do with my life? Who am I? Should I wear my pants rolled? Should I part my hair a certain way? It's, it's, it's T.S. Eliot's whole idea of proof rock was the speak of the modern man, and whether you're a man or a woman, this feels something like the modern sensibilities that we must struggle through. We almost have to spend our entire lives just figuring out what our entire lives are all about. And we get our answers in varying ways. The poet will invite us to seek beauty in everything. The business person will say, the best thing for you to do is to accumulate your wealth and find your financial means. And perhaps ourselves in varying points in our lives may come back to us in the present moment and say, This is what you should be doing with your life now. 15 year old Adam would be shocked that 38 year old Adam is pastor in Jacksonville, Florida. Probably so would 33-year-old Adam. Let's be honest. <laughs> but so many stories, so many directions, so many ways that we are invited to be something, and as all of these compete, we feel the neurotic proof rock in us. Coffee spoons, visions and revisions, human voices waking us until we finally drown. How do we get above that fray. There's this interesting phrase in James, this idea about the cravings at war within us. James seems to want to pin the idea of sinfulness as a lack of wisdom that has hallmarks of unabated anarchy for selfishness. Do you hear that? Well, this is what you want, and so you're going to do this thing that's clearly against the law. You want something, so you're going to murder. You want something else, and so you covet. You keep getting into fights for things that you want. The competition within you leads to these actionable ends that are just wrong. It stems from a chaos within us. It's funny, as I was looking at this, and I don't know why this was such a, such a literary mood, but as I was thinking about this, it's, it's almost like James sits down one day and he reads an Ayn Rand novel. And he's like, you yeah, know, I'm not sure this is the way we ought to be. I, I, I. Howard Rourke is not an ideal person for the Christian life. This doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. The answer is for James, godly obedience that reorders one's chaos and orients themselves into a specific direction. Do you hear that? It's, it's. Do you see the world that you're creating with all this conflict in you? It's not what you want, but this wisdom that is elsewhere has this sense of real beauty and grace and all these things that we'd love to be when the opportunity was in front of us. The million directions and anxiety that J. Alpha Prufrock feels could at least be directed towards something other than himself, according to James. Of course, when I think of J. Alpha Prufrock, I feel myself in there as as well. Maybe you do too. Maybe there's plenty of times when you in the midst of your walk and your life have tried to figure out what you were going to do and where you were going to go and 70 different people told you 70 different things and half of them were inside of you. And it might not have been worried about one's baldness or whether one should eat a peach but certainly no matter where we go we have multiple places where we have choices and directions and everything going all over the place. So all of these things And all of this anxiety that it it draws into us, James is saying, you know what? Some sort of direction with God, some sort of obedience towards God would be a way to even out all of that anxiety and all of that chaos and all of that anarchy. So the question may be, in all of this, trying to find a direction, where does that direction go? And Jesus, for his part in Mark, is again laser-focused on his end. Certainly, I think we could put as the antithesis of J. Alfred Prufrock, Jesus in the book of Mark, well, really Jesus in any of the Gospels, Jesus hardly ever wavers. And here in Mark, the the always-on-the-go, always-have-some-place-to-be Jesus in Mark, once again, Jesus is saying, do you realize what's going to happen to me?" you understand what discipleship means. That I will suffer, and I will die, and I will be resurrected for the things that I am saying, and the things that I am doing. And in the meantime, the disciples, who are the at their most dopey in the middle of Mark, are too busy fussing about who's better than the other. And you can tell they're embarrassed by it almost. It's like, it's like Jesus is, like, leaning back in the car and be like, what are you kids arguing about? And the disciples look quiet. And the way that he tries to answer this is to bring in a child. Now, in our understanding of our beloved children, we can very easily find this very rose-colored scene where Jesus... Brings Abraham and Frankie into his arms, sweet children that they are, and says, Love these children, and you will welcome us into your midst. And we all feel good. And everybody goes to bed happy. (laughs) Here's the worst part about this, is that's not what the gospel is intending. It's so easy yeah, for us in our modern understanding to look at it as something wonderful. In fact, it's the opposite. Right? Jesus is bringing these children, the Abrahams and Frankies, into the world and saying, you know, they really don't have much value. They're actually a burden on me, which is like you know, the sort of three o'clock in the morning, me. It's like, yeah, these kids are a burden. I can't get to sleep. You know, if you think about it in ancient times, you're already trying to keep everything else alive, and here are these creatures that are smaller than you and incapable of doing any work, incapable of actually understanding half of what's going on, they can't even hold their own, they're incontent half the time. They are a net drain to us. They're not really of any value until about you know, a few years later. And then they can do the work of the family. And yet, still, Jesus brings the child into the center, holds that child, and really does take that child up into his arms. and says, if you welcome what is, for all intents and purposes, a net drain to you, a net negative to your life, then you welcome me and you welcome my Father into your midst. When you think about it that way, boy, this really does start to point your arrows into a particular direction, doesn't it? It's not just be nice to kids at Sunday school. Or pat them on the head. It's like, find the most worthless people among you. The people that drain you the most. The people who are the net, you know, the net takers from your system. And put them in the middle. And hold them as close to you as you can. Do everything that you can to take care of them because if you do that, you have welcomed me into your midst. If I really think that's true, if I'm willing to take that at its word, it helps me look at the love song as J. Alfred Proofrock as nothing more than a neurotic fool who's too busy being concerned about himself and not being busily concerned about what's going on in the lives of others. I don't really care, Jay. Not, not you, Jenny. <laughs> I'm terribly concerned, Mr. Proofrock, about whether you roll your trousers or not. I could care less about whether you see yourself as Prince Hamlet or John the Baptist. That doesn't matter. In fact, it might be a waste of time to even be worried about it in the first place. listen, I take a moment here to say, I think sometimes the worst thing we do as as beloved believers is we hear something like this and we think, well, if I take this pastor at his word and I start doing this, I'm going to be better tomorrow, right? I'm also not going to be anxious about things. I'm also not going to worry about my hair being parted. You know, that's not true. Better to acknowledge that. As reformed Christians, we are reformed and always reforming. Putting one foot in front of the other in the right direction, pointing one or two arrows towards obedience to God is better than not doing anything at all. And so maybe, maybe I do eat a peach, or maybe I don't care whether I eat a peach or not. And I think, dear friends, whether... This is a personal quandary we have, or it's an ecclesial problem with the church. This is always a hard question. But also, dear friends, it should be at the center of every conversation we should be having about the, Christian, the Christian's role in the world. How are we bringing the child into our midst? It's not the fretting about the the... You know, It's not about fretting, it's not about the laments of not being John the Baptist, like I said before, or Hamlet, nor is it supposed to be this sort of ethical egoism that is always at the background of any sort of wealth or success or ambition. It's not to say, well, you know what, I do this for myself. I do this because it's for me. As James is inviting us to consider that doing things for ourselves, some sort of Supposed enlightened self-interest very often meets negative, chaotic ends. If we are the best at what we do, dear friends, we should do it for those who are the least. When we create, when we do, when we work, when we have all of these lofty ideals of who we can be personally and who this Church could be. We do it in service of those around us. I think, for instance, is, again, we continue to see, and it's hard not to see at this point, the progress of the buildings. If we said, you know what, we're going to do all of this, and we're going to build an iconic building, and it's going to be spectacular. And it's going to be rich with people and events. What good is it if it's not equally serving the child in all of its beauty, it would seem to me that we would want an icon for the person on River Road as much as we'd want an icon for the person on Phillips Highway. We want to think that the person on Phillips Highway is rightfully able to access all that we do because, in some ways, the person who is barely making it on the streets of Phillips Highway is the child in our midst today. What is it to bring them into the center and say, you know what, all that we have in all of its beauty and glory is also yours. The dignity that's offered there can't be replaced. What if we're a hub of thoughtful Christian civic life? What good is it if we keep it to ourselves? You know, I think if we do that, we're apt to create session and congregational meetings like retellings of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. are you know, always focused on the little things, always focused on the minutiae, not actually working towards the things that truly matter. Gosh, if that doesn't sound like most of mainline Christianity in 50 years, in the last 50 years, I don't know what does. It yeah, majoring on the minders. Friends, as we continue to walk this direction, as we continue to make the choices that we have, I think this is the bold question set before us. The thing that may separate us as a congregation from others in our community is instead of the chaos, instead of being concerned about whether we should roll our pants or whether we should worry about our baldness or whether we should worry about whether the yellow smoke has anesthetized the entire community Maybe we should say, how are we so directionally focused on welcoming the child to the center of our story? How are we actively then acting in obedience to the God who has given us so many gifts and so many skills can only answer it over time. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that we automatically figure out. But in the moments when we find ourselves lingering too close to the beach in our flannel flannel trousers, we might be wise just to say, who are we missing? And how can we find them in the arms of Jesus? Thanks be to God.